first reading is as you see on the screen there. In the 30th, 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, son Ahab, son of Omri, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. In Ahab's time, Hiel of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his younger son, Segeb, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine east of the Jordan and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. To God be the glory for his word. Starting at verse 7. Some time later, the brook dried up because there'd been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath. When he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, Would you bring me a little water in a jar so that I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said. 
But first make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the land. She went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Sometime later, the son of the woman who owned the house became ill. He grew worse and worse and finally stopped breathing. She said to Elijah, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I'm staying with by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. Good morning, church. Uh, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, if I haven't met you before, my name's Josh Vandekoy. I'm a, a pastor uh, at a sister church of yours. Now, you guys are a Presbyterian church, which means uh, you're a church connected to a, another, a whole group of churches here in uh, both here in WA and across our country called WPC. Uh, and I serve typically at one of those WPC churches uh, that's located in Bull Creek, uh, which you, you may uh, be familiar with. Uh, having said that, at the moment I'm actually uh, working at a, another uh, WPC church. I'm actually at uh, the church plant from uh, Bull Creek that has gone to Victoria Park. So there's a Presbyterian church there and I'm currently there just for a little while because the pastor of that church, a young guy named uh, Matt Dodd, who you may be familiar with, is about to go away on three months sabbatical, three months study leave. And so I'm there to help uh, keep things going while he goes away. So, uh, so yeah, I'm kind of in two places at once at the moment. But uh, it's great to be here this morning with you. And um, I, I see some familiar faces, also some new faces as well. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, if I haven't met you before, I'd love to do that after the service. Well, um, do keep your Bible open. Uh, we're going to be tracking through particularly chapter 17 of 1 Kings uh, together. But let's, let's get into it. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, as I said, I mentioned I work at a Bull Creek Church. A few weeks ago, or maybe a month or two ago now, um, we had a break-in at our church. Uh, now, that's never happened as far as I can tell. I've been at Bull Creek for a long time. I could never think of that happening before this point. So we had a, we had a minor break-in. Uh, someone got inside, uh, inside our church building early one morning when uh, no one was around. 
uh, and they tried to get into one of our offices to get it um, because there there was a safe in one of them. Uh, So they tried to break into one of them. Uh, Praise God, uh, our alarm system did its job uh, and the intruders left without taking anything. And as I said, no one was in the building at the time. But I don't know if you've ever experienced something like that, uh, a break-in at home, uh, perhaps. Now, that's never happened to me personally. I know it does happen uh, uh, to a lot of people. Um, and from what I understand, it's, it's something that can be really quite traumatising. And not just because of the initial shock that someone has intruded upon really your most personal space, the place you call home, that the one place you're meant to be safe. But also, I think there's, there's extra shock because it, it, it makes you realise, well, you're not as secure as you thought you were. Now, security is something that we all long for, isn't it? It's something we're all searching for. That's why uh, we have security systems. That's why we have uh, alarms on our cars, why we use passwords for our online accounts. It's a reality, really, of, of living in a world that's full of sin. And so my question for you this morning is, well, where do you find security? I don't mean where do you find alarm systems or that or whatnot. I mean, where in, in your life, where's your place of greatest security? Is there somewhere, somewhere like that for you? A place where you find, feel truly secure? If not, I suspect that would be a good thing to discover, wouldn't it be? So in our passage this morning, 1 Kings uh, chapter 17, well, we find an answer to this question. Where can we find greatest security? There's no alarm systems to be seen. You would have noticed that if we read the the passage. No. Rather, it's all to do with the prophet Elijah's initial actions. Now, I say initial actions because uh, with no introduction and no notice, Elijah arrives in this story like a sudden thunderstorm. Now, it's one of a number of unusual events that we find in chapter 17. And I say it's unusual because at this point, we don't know anything about Elijah. This is the first we're hearing about him. We don't know what he does. Uh, we, We don't know what standing he has in the Israelite community. All we know, all the information we're given is that he's of Tishba in Gilead. That's it. And so this, this guy comes seemingly out of nowhere and bam, he's there before the king of Israel to pronounce a curse. Now he says he, he might arrive like a sudden thunderstorm, but he's there to say now that there's going to be no thunderstorms and no rain at all for the next few years. Okay, that's all going away, he says. Now, with one important qualifier, what is it? Well, he says, there'll be no dew or no rain except by my word. That's Elijah speaking for God as God's prophet. Now, why would he need to do this? Why would he need to pronounce a curse? Well, we saw it earlier in the uh, end of chapter 16, didn't we? We saw the reason there. The current king of Israel, a guy named Ahab, well, he's the worst king yet. He's so bad, in fact, that the author of uh, 1 Kings describes him as doing more evil, quote, than any of those before him, end quote. That's chapter 16, verse 30. So no wonder 
God has to uh, bring a curse of judgment upon Israel because their king is leading them astray. Now, what kind of response do you think the king is going to give upon hearing Elijah uh, tell him the water is about to be turned off? I bet Elijah wasn't feeling very secure at that moment. Well, we're, we're not told. We're not told what the king's response is because uh, just as soon as Elijah has suddenly appeared, well, then he suddenly disappears and he goes out into the outback at God's command. And there, we're told, he spends in some indefinite period of time out by a brook in the bush. And God promises, while he's there, to look after him. He says, I'm going to feed you with ravens. And you imagine that, ravens? It's, it's some sort of uh, ancient version of Uber Eats. And uh, he, he's, well, he's fed pretty well while he's out there. He's looked after. He gets two square meals a day. Now, that's better than the Israelites got when they were in the, old, uh, the Exodus wilderness. But yet it's, it's, it's a strange scenario because ravens, and you'll know this if you're familiar with the Old Testament uh, uh, food laws, ravens are unclean animals. And so the food that they're bringing him, not just being brought by unclean animals, but the food, it's described as meat in verse 8. Well, let's just say it's probably not a medium rare steak that they're bringing him, more like rare roadkill, which again would, would have not have fit into the uh, Old Testament category of uh, clean foods. But again, uh, we're not told, we're not given any comment about these strange occurrences. We're just given the information, we're just told God promised it would happen, that he'd be look, looked after, and it happens. That's it. But again, it raises the question, why, why should he go out there in the first place? Why not just continue hanging around town? I mean, that's where all the, the good food is. That's where all the comfort is, all the security is. Why not hang around civilization where you don't need to eat roadkill? Well, you might be thinking, well, maybe Elijah's on the run. I mean, he's just given this evil king bad news. Maybe he's expecting retribution. So that's why he's out there. But we need to look closely to see what's actually really going on here. And as always, it's the context, the context of the passage that gives us the clues. Now, given we've already heard that the king of Israel is wicked and evil, more so than any before him, well, it makes sense that what we see here with Elijah's movements isn't, as one Bible teacher puts it, it's not God's witness protection program. No, what we're seeing is God's pronouncement of judgment against Israel. And he brings this judgment, not with flashes of lightning and, and, and uh, thunder, uh, the peals of thunder. No, he brings the judgment by going silent, by moving his prophet, his mouthpiece, out far away into the wilderness. I imagine it'd be something like if uh, Grace Christian Church Armadale suddenly stopped sending out its newsletter. Or if you stopped having announcements at church. Or if you stopped having sermons on Sundays. Right? If that happened, you'd know something has gone badly wrong. And that's what's happened here. Something has gone badly wrong. And what is it? Well, it's that Israel has stopped 
listening to God. Now, the end of chapter 16 makes that clear. Israel's more interested in listening to other gods. And so the true God goes silent as the king of Israel leads the people astray. And so God, he sends his spokesman away from the king, away from the people in a sign of judgment. Now, it's a sign, in fact, that we see repeated throughout the scripture, not just here in the Old Testament. We see it as well even with Jesus in the New Testament. So you could have a look, for example, at the the Gospel of Mark. And there we, we see Jesus regularly leaves locations where religious leaders or people are against him. So there's an example of this. I'll read it to you briefly from Mark chapter 3, verse 6 and 7. If you're familiar with that passage, Jesus has just healed a man who had a withered hand and he's done that in a synagogue on the Sabbath. And the watching Pharisees, they're right there, they're watching him, they're waiting to accuse him, we're told, because they're, they're legalists, so you can't do anything on the Sabbath. And here comes Jesus, he heals this man and when they see him do it, We read in verse 6, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians, who are the Pharisees' enemies, they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. And what happens? The, The very next verse, the very next words after this, what does Mark say? He says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. Now, I think that's a very conscious uh, decision about the choice of word there. That's withdrew. That's not Jesus suddenly decided he's going to go on a road trip. No, it's as if Jesus is saying, you don't want to listen? Fine, I'll go. Now, that's, that's the devastating reality of sin. If we refuse or choose to to refuse to listen to God, if we stick our fingers in our ears and shout, la, 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 he's not going to force us to listen to him. He'll just stop speaking. It's like that the lifeguard who warns the person swimming in shark-infested waters that they are in mortal danger. He warns them over and over again only for the person to steadfastly refuse to even acknowledge the warning. So what does the lifeguard do? Well, he he packs up and he goes home. Now, that's the terrifying nature of God's judgment that we're seeing here in this passage. Not that God says something that we don't like, but that he doesn't say anything and he just leaves us in our sin and misery. But Elijah's story doesn't end there because after a while, the brook that he's staying at, it dries up. His water's gone and so... Before we move on, actually, it's worth saying that while it doesn't seem it in this moment, this is actually a big deal, the fact that the, the, the curse of no water has come to fruition. Yeah, the, the fact that the drought has arrived and its impact says something really significant. Because it tells us what we're seeing in this passage is not just some local event, we're actually seeing a battle between Elijah's God and a local God. How so? Well, historical context, uh, context will help us here. We know that from the end of chapter 16, that Ahab has led uh, the people of Israel to following other gods. But what God in particular? Did you catch it as we read it? It's one God in particular, the God named Baal. Now, you've probably heard of him. He pops up uh, a number of times in the Old Testament. And what we know about 
the god Baal is that he is the storm god of the Canaanites. In other words, he's the one who provides rain. So here's God, right, in the, in the clearest terms saying, you want to see who controls the rain? Let me show you. And we see, uh, as we see, as we read this story, it becomes quickly apparent, oh, this battle is not much of a contest. By the end of these first seven verses, it's already abundantly clear. God won, Baal zero. And so then God sends Elijah off to a new location. He leaves the brook and heads off elsewhere. But he doesn't go back to Israel. He doesn't go back to home base. He doesn't go back to the king. In fact, he leaves Israel altogether. He heads out to some foreign land. He goes to Sidon, we're told, out onto the west coast, right up against the Mediterranean Sea. And who's he there to see? Who's he there to visit? Well, apparently, some random widow. In fact, we don't even know her name. Uh, But God promises, or God has promised that she will look after Elijah, and so he goes there. Now, the initial conversation between Elijah and this widow well, might make you do a bit of a, a double take. Again, I don't know if you picked this up as we were reading it. Remember, there's a, a drought going on. There's not much uh, water, and that means there's not much resources around generally. And for someone like a widow with, with no husband to provide for her, it's likely that she's only just scraping by. But Elijah meets this widow, and what's the first thing he says? He says, can you get me some water? And she goes to, appears to comply with that. Off she goes. And then while she's on her way, oh, actually, can you get me some bread too? Now, she, she balks at this second request from Elijah, telling him she's about to go and prepare the last meal for her and her son. That's how meager her supplies are at that moment. But that doesn't stop Elijah. He says this in verse 13, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said, but first, first, make a small loaf of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me, and then make something for yourself and your son. I don't know if you were reading that, if you just feel like, come on, Elijah, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? I mean, how can he be so bold to ask this of a woman who's in the middle of a drought, who's got basically nothing. Now God, well, God promises to sustain. He promises to continue sustaining not just Elijah, but the widow and her son, even with the most meager resources that they have on hand. But for God, well, that's not a problem, is it? He can create miracles out of the meager And as we keep reading, that's exactly what we see. This woman and her son, and now Elijah too, they all feast on these apparent morsels for days, right up until the rain returns, at some indeterminate period of time. Now, how? How has this happened? Well, because, like we read in verse 16, it says, it was in keeping with the word of the Lord. In other words... It all happens exactly like God says it will happen. But even with this kind of surprising miracle, 
well, things are about to get a lot worse for Elijah because uh, no sooner do things seem to have settled down that the widow's son suddenly dies. Now, it's not from lack of food, but from an illness. And unsurprisingly, this brings the widow's anger to bear against Elijah. As she says in, in verse 18, What do you have against me, man of God? Did you come to remind me of my sin and kill my son? Now, this, this tells us something of what the, the pagan gods of the day were really like. Now, she's saying, you've brought this upon me because of my sin. That's why my son is dead. It tells you that the, the, the pagan gods from that, that time and place must have been known as vengeful beings. That's similar to perhaps the, the gods that we might be familiar with, the ones from the Greeks and the Romans. They're gods who, who, if you do the wrong thing, they'll pay you back. You step out of line and you'll get in trouble. Now, in this case, the widow is saying the payback for her sin is the taking of her own son's life, her only son's life. But here's the question. Is that a fair critique of Elijah's God? Is it a fair critique of our God? Well, let's, let's see what happens next. Elijah takes the boy, he takes him upstairs, he, he cries out to God for help. He stretches himself over the boy three times, symbolizing the request he's making to God that, for the boy's body to become alive like his. And what happens? What do we see? Well, verse 22, it reads, The Lord heard Elijah's cry, and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. What does this tell us? It tells us this isn't a God who takes life in vengeance. No, this is a God who gives life. And so here's God again intervening in this specific situation. It's not that the king's son who has died, some public figure. No, this is, again, just some random pagan family in a random pagan city, completely unconnected from, from Israel. And yet the God of life intervenes with what is the first resurrection in the pages of Scripture, the first one that you'll read about. It's God to Baal zero. Now, what are we meant to make of all of this? Well, there's a, there's a couple of things we could say. But first, I think it's important that we say something about how we're meant to read a passage like this. Uh, how are we meant to read it? Well, why should we do this? Well, frankly, because if you're like me, we have a tendency to insert ourselves into the story as the main character, in this case, as Elijah. We read his story, we think, yeah, that's, that's what I'm meant to do. But it doesn't take long to realize, well, this doesn't work. Let's be honest, I mean, we shouldn't be expected to be fed roadkill by ravens anytime soon. So if this story is not primarily then about Elijah, then what is it about? Well, Elijah's name actually gives us the clue or points us in the right direction. 
Right, here's the, the literal translation of his name. Okay? Here's what Elijah means. It means, my God is Yahweh. It's, it's as if Elijah himself is a giant neon sign pointing right to God. And so that tells us that the main character in this story, as it is throughout the whole Bible, is, is God. Right? He's the main, the main character in this story. And so that means when we come to a story like this, the question we want to be asking is not, how am I like the, the, the main earthly character, but like, how does this story tell us about God? What does this story tell us about our God? So in that vein, here's two things that we can say as we kind of uh, draw things together. First thing to say relates to our perception of God. Now, I imagine that if you were an Israelite in this day and age, if you were one of God's people, it might have looked like, while this was going on, it might have looked like God just wasn't doing anything, like he was taking a holiday, that the rain's gone away, and there's been nothing from God, just drought. He's gone silent, right? He must just be away doing other things. But the, as we read this passage, we see that the details tell us that couldn't be further from the truth. Because what we're seeing is God is at work. Now, sure, he's, he's working with a foreign family in a, in a foreign city, but he's at work nonetheless. And so the, the first lesson to grasp is God is always at work, even if we can't see it. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind, isn't it? Now, here at church, I'm sure uh, for you guys, there are, there are many things that happen in a uh, repeated uh, pattern over and over again. The same thing's happening again and again. Right? Every week, you've got a, a church service like we're doing now. Every week, you've got connect groups. You've got your, uh, your ladies' uh, prayer meetings, fellowship teas. Now, we get together and have the same chats with each other after church. But let's not be fooled or or for a second lulled into thinking that just because maybe it appears as if nothing visibly remarkable is happening, or just even if it might appear that way, that we perhaps haven't seen waves of conversions or or a congregation doubling in size overnight, or just because it might appear that way doesn't mean that God isn't at work. Because what we're seeing here is he is at work even if I can't see it. And, and that is because he often works in the ordinary things of life. I mean, in this story, he provides a handful of oil and a handful of flour as a miracle. But that meager miracle 